as it is a full house, we might as well start. I'm Athar Hussain, director of the Asia Research Center, and I have great pleasure in welcoming Mr. Joel Bacala, who is the associate vice president of the strategy, Frontier Strategy Group, and has spent many years in Asia, including two in China, Singapore, Taiwan, and is a fluent speaker of Chinese, having learned Chinese both in Taiwan and mainland China and Beijing. So please welcome. Hi, good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming out today. I know it's a weekday evening, so it's great to see so many faces here. Um, what we're going to talk today about is Chinese investment in Europe, but more broadly, Chinese investment globally and outside of China. Um, so there's a few things that we'll talk about. It's just a bit about my background, but we're going to be looking more and more at the growing number of Chinese companies that are looking for ways to go out. We're going to explore why do they want to go out, what are they seeking, and what are their motivations. Uh, but more importantly, what are the implications going to be for the host governments where they're investing? And what, whether it's all bad or all good, we need to understand really what the consequences will be and what are the best ways to react and make the best of it so it's a mutually beneficial situation. <coughs> So first, let's take a step back and look at Chinese investment from the other perspective, which is Western companies investing into China. So if you look at the way that a lot of American and European businesses have, have kind of framed China and framed the emerging markets in general in the past, they've taken the progression with what you see here on the screen. So first, it used to be primarily, what, what, what am I looking at, at outside of North America and Europe, which is the BRIC markets, so Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And so they expanded into these overseas markets, primarily looking for growth, so to essentially seize market share at all costs and expand their international presence in some of these really hot emerging markets. But what we saw as things evolved is we had a number of things happen where the economies in the West have essentially changed dramatically. We've had competition increase fairly substantially in Asian markets. So we're starting to see companies not just invest in China, but really go deep in China. So it's not just Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou, some of these larger cities, but it's also looking to maximize profitability in some of the mainland. Uh, additionally, what it's also changing is looking outside of China and the Asia-Pacific region, so looking into Southeast Asia and markets like Indonesia and Vietnam. Um, this is a big difference from when I used to work in Asia because when I speak to these heads of Asia-Pacific, I, I tend to ask them what markets outside of China are really your key Asia-Pacific markets. And the vast majority of them will tell me to say, Joel, for our business, China is Asia. And I think that's really changed substantially in recent years. So at the same time as the way that we kind of viewed China as a business opportunity domestically and the way that that's changed from a, a, a message of growth to one of balanced growth or growth and profitability, the way the West and the way the European executives view kind of China and the world is also changing as well. Um, what you see on the left is kind of just a snapshot of what that progression is. So looking at China, we're all used to buying goods that are made in China. Looking at China as a cheap manufacturing center and kind of the world's factory. But what we've seen is competition has increased substantially, prices have increased, and it's, it's essentially no longer as competitive to, to purely manufacture in China. We're starting to see more and more companies start looking at China as a true consumer market. So what you see here on the screen in the middle is a snapshot of Alibaba. It's a big e-commerce company. Um, many of you have seen in the news with the US IPO, um, but they have a team off-site, and they had a holiday celebration in November. 
And in less than 24 hours, about $5 billion were spent online, which is an impressive number by any standards. It's something that really demonstrates how much of a consumer market opportunity that exists in China today. So we're used to China as a producer, as a factory, and we're used to China as a consumer, and we're getting more and more used to that. But what we're seeing more and more is China as the competitor and the rise of Chinese competition. Um, and this is not just happening in China, but internationally. So what you see here on the screen is a statistic from an executive breakfast that my firm organized uh, just this past April. We had about 40 senior executives who are, were either heads of Asia Pacific or heads of China for large Western <coughs> international companies. In a series of polling questions that we asked them, one of the main questions we asked them was, you know, what, what, what factor in China's evolving environment is going to have the, lar the largest impact on your ability to hit your targets in 2014? And, and remarkably, 41% of them said local Chinese competition. And this is only going to increase over time, and we're seeing this not just happen domestically in China, but more and more internationally. So as these Chinese companies go global, it's not just where they're placing their investments, but also the increased competition that you're seeing with Western multinational companies. <coughs> so the main question that, that a lot of us need to ask is, is what does it mean for us and what does it mean for each one of you in this room? So what we'll talk about today are our four main areas related to Chinese investment in the EU. First is, what are the motivations? So why are Chinese companies <coughs> looking to go global in the first place? What are the, what are the true kind of drivers of their motivations? Next, we'll look at the readiness. So it's one thing to want to go global and aspire to go global, but it's a completely separate thing to be able to successfully execute and, and be prepared to do well expanding overseas. Next, we'll look at the approach. So how are Chinese companies going global? Are they pursuing a Greenland expansion, Greenfield expansion? Are they pursuing M&A or other forms of partnerships? And then lastly, we'll look at the impact. So what are the costs and what are the benefits? And how can we understand how to best create a mutually beneficial situation over the course of the long term? So why are Chinese companies going global? This brings us to our first key point, which is Chinese companies are going global both for government-driven motivations as well as business motivations. A lot of people talk about China's going out as being part of the Zhou Chu or China, the Chinese government's go-out policy. But in reality, that's only a small aspect or, or, or a fraction of why Chinese companies are going global. A lot of the companies you're seeing, like Alibaba, like Lenovo, these companies are going global more so for business-driven motivations. A lot of these motivations are the same as any, any private multinational company going overseas in the first place. That said, though, they're going to face a number of challenges. Some of those are, are the same as Western companies, but many of them are also unique to Chinese firms. We'll talk about those later on in the discussion. On the government side, Chinese companies are going global for, for these three main reasons. Um, and, and this was primarily the way a lot of people have looked at Chinese investment overseas, especially characterized as large state-owned national champions going into emerging markets like Africa, like Latin America, and investing in resource projects and infrastructure projects. And while that still holds true today, we're also seeing more and more companies do so for other reasons. But from the state perspective, it's this whole idea of creating national champions, it's sitting on about $4 trillion U.S. dollars in foreign exchange reserves. So investing in state-owned companies is more of a controllable way for it to get that money outside of China. And then last is getting natural resources that are important for fueling the long-term economic growth for China. So beyond these three, though, there, are, there is a completely separate set of reasons for why Chinese companies want to go global. And many of these reasons are the same as any American company or any European company. 
First, they're seeking advanced technologies. So for Chinese companies, because the competitive environment has gotten so intense, they need to look to many of these ways and many of these paths in order to increase their competitiveness back home in China, but also to make themselves eventually more competitive in international markets. So companies might get advanced technology that isn't available in China and then will give them an upper hand when competing with their local competitors in mainland, but also potentially other Western competitors. Um, alternatively, they may be looking at management talent and, and incorporating best practices from other international organizations. Um, so I'll tell you a story. Um, I was speaking with a number of individuals over the course of researching my book. Um, one of the individuals was a Harvard PhD. She was from mainland China, um, but she was brought in as a psychologist to help him manage the, change, the management change transition when Lenovo acquired IBM's personal computer brand back in 2005. What she told me was their CEO, Bill Emilio, faced a number of very serious challenges when he first took seat. He was integrating two very different management teams between the American and Chinese side. And, and personally, he felt that as much as he, he was, was happy to have the opportunity to take on the challenge to be able to um, merge these two very large companies, he felt that about half the people on his senior management team from Lenovo, they had the ability to manage international businesses, while the other half didn't. Um, so what he wanted to do was he essentially wanted to fire all the managers. He thought they really didn't have the right capabilities and he wanted to bring his own team. Um, but after speaking with the psychologist, he, he really knew that wasn't the thing that he could do because there would be serious ramifications beyond the loss of those staff. So the two of them worked together and they came up with a solution that was very fitting for the Chinese culture. And what they did was they created actually two levels of senior vice presidents. So they had one position called Senior Vice President One, or SVP One. And this position was designated for the managers who they felt really had the global best practices and the global know-how to run a global business. They then designated another series of, another set of position called SVP Two, or Senior Vice President Two. And this set of, of executives, they had a very clear mandate that they needed to either upskill their capabilities or go out and find a new job. Um, what was interesting, though, was that no matter whether you were an SVP1 or an SVP2, you could still go out to your family and friends and say that you're a senior vice president working at Lenovo. So externally, everybody saved face, but internally, there's a very clear mandate about who needs to increase their capabilities versus who needed to essentially continue to just do whatever they were doing. And that's just one example. You'll also see examples of Chinese companies purchasing international companies for their brand recognition. Um, these brand recognition may help them enter new markets, such as Geely buying Volvo, or it could also help open up new opportunities back in the Chinese market itself. So you look at a company, it's actually a bulldozer manufacturer purchased Ferretti Yachts in Italy, and their whole idea is that there's an emerging opportunity for the luxury class to buy yachts in China, and so that's why they made that acquisition. Um, and then last is just Chinese companies are going abroad to diversify away from the Chinese market. As much as there's so much growth potential in China, regardless of your industry, you're going to need to diversify away from the Chinese market. Um, today, we're already seeing that with the steel industry, where there's overcapacity. Um, and these Chinese firms are doing that in, in a couple ways. They're, they're entering different markets overseas, or they're entering kind of different divisions that are very different from their core markets. So a lot of these steel manufacturers right now are actually looking into um, kind of pig farming in very obscure industries where there's more investment potential, but they're entirely different from the business that they originally started. 
So it's very clear why Chinese companies are going global. There's very clear government motivations with the going out policy. There's very clear business motivations with their idea to increase their competitiveness at home and overseas. But are they ready to do so? Um, I, I have an entire chapter in my book that I dedicate to this where I look at five key relationships that I think Chinese companies need to master in order to do this. Um, these, these are relationships related to their understanding of engaging the government, uh, how to incentivize and work with their employees, how to engage with customers and understand their customers in international markets, um, how to engage the community and be viewed as a responsible investor, and then also how to invest the right amount of capital over the long term. First was you look at readiness. I, I want to point to the example of Li Ning. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of this company, but it's, it's a Chinese athletic apparel company that's similar to a Nike or an Adidas. Um, this is the founder of Li Ning, his, his actual name, and he was hoisted up to the top of the Olympic Stadium in 2008 when they had the Olympics to light the torch. And a lot of people know this, but they didn't know that just one year later, uh, Li Ning actually went to the US to Portland, Oregon to compete directly with Nike. Um, they went out and, and at that time they had a very strong position in China and they were competing very well against Nike and Adidas. The challenge was, was they had a serious misstep by going overseas too early. They did not manage those five relationships that I just mentioned. They went out with a very small team of about 30 staff. Um, they were highly centralized in their management decisions. So many of the decisions were made in Beijing and were essentially just told to their team on the ground in the US. Um, so much so that there was an employee that was being hired or actually promoted to the Beijing office and he was approved internally in the US but then Beijing after it was communicated to the entire team said that they didn't want him in Beijing and they had to send him back. Um, but one of the things that was most important was they just didn't understand the American consumer market. Um, Time Magazine did a great investigative report where they went into the store to see what was actually there. And in addition to selling maybe the exception of basketball and running shoes, they were selling products like badminton rackets, kung fu gear, and, and table tennis. So things that just were very not in tune with the American market. Um, but the most important thing was, in addition to having to retreat from the US market, when it, when it did go back to China, it actually was missing out a significant market share, both to international competitors like Nike and Adidas in China, but also to other emerging market competitors like its, like its peer, Anta, as well. And Leaning's not the only company that's doing this. There are plenty of Chinese companies that are going global because, you know, per, quite particularly, it's really around opportunistic expansion or just the idea that they should be going overseas without really thinking about whether it makes sense for its business strategy. Um, many of you have probably seen this man's face in the news all over, uh, I'd say all over business news for the last two or three months. It's uh, Jack Ma, the chairman of Alibaba Group, China's largest e-commerce company and probably one of the most serious Chinese firms you'll see out there. Um, this is from an interview that he gave in Hong Kong when they were on their roadshow, and he said that the firm intends to essentially invest aggressively in the US and in Europe over the course of the next few months and next few years. Um, and while I think the company certainly has a lot of the international capabilities to expand overseas, I don't think that was the right time, the same way that wasn't the right time for leaning. Alibaba has a huge opportunity in China. They have about 50% market share in the business-to-consumer space with this Tmall store. They have 90% market share with its consumer-to-consumer -consumer platform, Taobao. But in reality, there's still a significant amount of the Chinese population that isn't even online yet. So meanwhile, even though they're doing very well in the current state of the market, there's a lot of room to grow, and there's a lot of competitors from firms like Tencent and Baidu that want to take back that market share 
and compete very effectively against Alibaba. Um, so I'd argue that now is not the right time for Alibaba to look at, at overseas markets. I think despite its IPO, it needs to continue to focus exclusively on China and maximize that opportunity. Um, so if we look at each of the relationships that I mentioned and how it interacts with the two case studies that I just shared is, first is this whole idea of the relationship with the government. Um, and, and I think Chinese companies going global, they face this relationship on, on both sides of the ocean. Within China, there's this complex web of, of government agencies that they need to navigate when they want to actually place an overseas investment. These are agencies like the Ministry of Commerce, the NDRC, even to get their money outside of China in foreign currency, they have to work with an agency called SAFE. So when you look at some of these large-scale merger and acquisition deals, when time matters, it can be very hard to get through this process in the right amount of time. The Chinese government recognizes this and is working to improve it, but still it's something that's really forcing a lot of Chinese companies to pay more when they're trying to make an overseas purchase. Then when Chinese companies do make it into the overseas market, they tend not to know who to go to for help. So here's an example from a survey that the European Union Chamber of Commerce ran last year. And many of the top concerns are related to Chinese companies not understanding who to work with when they enter markets like the EU. They often place too much emphasis on the governments, and especially the central governments, to support their investment decisions. Um, instead, they really need to be working with third-party consultants in these markets that can help them navigate the regulatory environment and understand how to best kind of manage their operations. But instead, you have a situation where many Chinese companies are just looking for a government trade promotion agency to help solve all of their problems. The next challenge is company to employees. Um, I think we see this in, in many situations where regardless if you're an American company, a European company, a Chinese company, Whenever you're going overseas and opening an international office, you always have to strike the right balance between a centralized organization and headquarters and a decentralized and maximizing your decentralized presence on the ground in your overseas market. Um, oftentimes, though, we, we tend to see that Chinese companies, and through my research I found, that they tend to be highly, highly centralized in their decision-making process. Um, and while there are obviously exceptions, this is more looking at it in terms of in more general terms. And to give you an example, I interviewed several heads of North America and heads of Europe for these large Chinese companies. Um, this was all at the beginning of my research, and they all told me a fairly similar story. They were very excited about having a large Chinese company with plenty of investment, and they thought they were going to get exactly what they needed in order to be able to successfully expand into the US or into Europe. Um, but interestingly, after I conduct, finished my research, I went back to many of them and I tried to get a sense as to how it went. And two or three years later, many of them surprisingly were not actually at their firms anymore. Um, they either proactively left or they were fired. And when I spoke to them, many of the times they were saying that a lot of the reason was because the, government, the Chinese corporate center back in China just didn't understand the realities on the ground and how long it takes for business to get done. Um, they didn't understand the local regulatory environments, which, again, kind of hurt their expectations. Um, additionally, the Chinese companies would set unrealistic expectations for their targets. So they would assume that you know, any Chinese company operating overseas could have the same performance as it operating in China in a very different environment. Um, so the thing that was interesting about this was they didn't just hire a foreign face in these markets. They were the people that I was speak, that I spoke to were all individuals that were industry veterans. So they had 20, 30 years of experience in their in their industry working for European and American firms before working for the Chinese company. 
So the thing that, that this really showed me was not only do Chinese companies need to hire the right people on the ground, they need to have people back at the corporate center that understand the local markets, that understand the challenges that their teams are likely to face, so that way they can manage expectations accordingly on both sides of the ocean. The next relationship is company to customers. So this is going to vary depending on whether it's a business to consumer, a B2C company, or a business to business company, a B2B company. On the business to consumer side, I interviewed experts across public relations, corporate centers, across marketing, advertising, and they all told me a, a similar story, which is Chinese companies are not placing enough emphasis on marketing as a strategic function and really understanding their consumers on the ground. Um, and a bit of an exaggerated example is one of the experts in the public relations space who had about 30 years of experience out there told me, he said, Joel, there's a joke that people talk about in China when it comes to PR and branding. He said that for, for many Chinese companies, PR, uh, for many Chinese companies, branding is essentially buying a new logo, and advertising is you know, buying ads on China Central Television. And PR stands for pay the reporter, and that's how you get the success. <laughs> um, obviously, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but, but it is something that's kind of a perceived notion about how Chinese companies value their brand and value the importance of marketing within their organization. And that all translates to how well they engage their consumers on the ground. On the other side, in the B2B space, um, this relates to another conversation I had with a former government official that now has a, a consulting firm in Beijing. He told me, he said, Joel, when you're looking at Chinese businesses and how, they engage, um, and how they engage with partners and customers, you need to recognize that China is fundamentally what it says here, which is a or a familiar people society. So in a familiar people society, it's ruled by relationships and not contracts. And this was key because as Chinese companies begin expanding overseas more and more, contracts matter. And a key takeaway from my book is that any Chinese company operating in the US or Europe they can't play by a separate set of rules. And a lot of people have this misconception, but those overseas subsidiaries are American firms, they're European firms, and they, they can't play by a separate set of rule books, so contracts do matter, and the legal frameworks in these overseas markets will, will be able to hold them to. <coughs> the next relationship is company to community. So Chinese companies, they have a long way to go when it comes to investing in overseas markets. We've had years and years of hearing stories of China's misstep, missteps at home, whether that be food security, pollution, um, product concerns. These are all things that are, are in the back of American and European consumers in their heads. Um, just for example, there is a, a Chinese company called Shuanghui, and just last year they wanted to buy one of the largest pork producers in the United States. It's uh, probably actually one of the top three in the world called Smithfield Foods. Right when they made that announcement, about one month prior, um, there, were actually, there was news that I think thousands of dead pigs were floating along the Huanghu River in Shanghai. So here you had news reports making global headlines of, of dead pigs floating along the river in one of China's largest cities. And then you have another news report in the business section talking about how one of China's biggest pig companies wants to buy one in the United States. So it's very important that Chinese companies, as they go overseas, they don't just focus purely on commercial execution. They need to demonstrate that they're going to be a responsible investor and give back to the community. Um, this is just one example from a Chinese wind energy firm, Goldwind, and a partnership that they've signed with the university in Germany. Um, it's a small step, but it's something that you'll continue to see more of, especially as these companies start to see the value in working with public relations firms and other firms that can help build their brand for an international audience. 
Um, and the last and most fundamental relationship is just company to capital. Are these Chinese companies investing enough money to get their businesses started? Are they incentivizing their, their overseas employees by international standards? And are they investing enough for long-term growth in order for the company not just to make a big splash when it enters a market, but to be able to expand successfully over the long term? So we understand why Chinese companies are going global. We understand how some of them might not be ready to do so at this stage. But what paths are they taking? I think we, we talk a lot about Chinese companies placing, um, placing investments in international markets through Greenfield by opening up factories and other, other overseas operations. There's also lots of partnerships as well. But one of the things I think that we hear and see in the headlines quite a bit is Chinese investment via mergers and acquisitions, or M&A. Um, so I want to talk about a few of the characteristics that I think are, are very different. Chinese companies, they tend to face any of the same, the same challenges when taking part in, in an international M&A deal that, that any country is going to face. But it's, there's a series of factors that make it incredibly difficult for them as Chinese companies. So just a moment ago, I showed you kind of this complex web of, China, of Chinese government agencies that a Chinese company needs to go and navigate through when it wants to take part in an overseas deal. Um, so it's just not easy. Um, so what investment bankers do to, to compensate for this is they essentially started charging Chinese companies a significant premium if they want to acquire an overseas firm. I don't have the statistic for Europe, but they're, they're paying as much in, the U in North America as 33% more. Um, this is still on par with what you see from other international investors that are probably closer to around 22 or 25%, but significantly more for Chinese firms for many of the reasons we talked about regarding their inexperience and a lot of the, the fact that, and the fact that this is in many cases their first time taking part in an international M&A deal. Next is the management business are more complex. It's one thing for a company to go from London to Ireland and do a site visit when they're doing a merger and acquisition, but it's another thing for it to be to go from China to the United States or China to Europe. Visas become a very real issue. Um, and then just the whole idea of the speed that that business deal needs to take part in is also counterintuitive to the way a lot of Chinese companies do business. Um, this quote here is from an industry veteran in the M&A space that I spoke to in Beijing. And he said essentially that the Chinese companies do not expect to do business in such a tight time frame. And the fact that it has to be um, rushed so much more for the deal to go through is just a, a counter Chinese way of doing business. Last is uh, the post-merger integration process is a lot more complex. Um, I just told you about the Lenovo example where they were kind of delicately managed that the cultural integration that had to take place. Uh, a lot of times the companies, they, they don't really not understand the best way to do that. There's different languages, there's different cultures, there's different business cultures. And this can be very difficult for a Chinese company that has little experience operating overseas. Um, the way that a lot of Chinese companies can compensate for this is they can take what I call a relatively hands-off approach. So they can invest capital into a business that's doing well, but just is in a lot of debt, and at the same time be able to um, learn a bit more about the overseas environment. Um, and I have an example that I can share with you later on in the presentation. Uh, this is a, a, the complete opposite of more of a hands-on approach, which is when you merge two very different organizations, their back office functions like HR and finance, and it can become a very messy process when you don't really know what you're doing. I mean, it's even a messy process when you do know what you're doing. Um, so now it's really, what are the main issues? What are the costs and benefits of Chinese companies entering Europe and, and investing here in the UK? 
Uh, this is a quote from Chinese economic reformer Deng Xiaoping. It says, 打开窗户,新鲜空气会进来,场音也会飞进来。When <laughs> you open a window, fresh air will come in, but so will some flies. And he, and he said this in relation to Western companies or overseas companies investing in China. And I think it's, it's very wise advice where he's saying that, well, there will be many benefits of foreign firms investing in China and helping us develop our economy. At the same time, there's bound to be some negative externalities of having foreign participants within our market. And I think it's the same as you look at Chinese investors coming here to the UK. It's the same as Chinese investors going to Germany, to the US. Well, it, well there's certainly going to be benefits. There will inevitably be some negative consequences. And the best we can do is maximize those benefits while putting the right structures in place to minimize the risk. So starting with the, the costs or concerns, these tend to vary depending on whether you're in the government, whether you're a corporation, or whether you're a consumer. Uh, they also vary quite a bit depending on geography. So where I'm from in the United States, they tend to vary quite. They try. They tend to worry quite a bit on the government side around national security and cybersecurity. Um, there was actually a very large investigation to Huawei and ZTE, two large Chinese telecommunications firms, in 2012. Um, However, in Europe, there tends to be much more of a focus on labor issues, consumer standards, and kind of the, environment, the environmental costs associated with China's investment in, in Europe. Um, at the same time, there's, I think on both sides, there's concern on the corporate perspective, which are things like unfair competition, intellectual property theft, uh, job and company relocation. So what happens after a Chinese firm purchases Weedabix here in the UK? Do they shut down the company and then open up a factory back in, in Shanghai? Or do they actually invest over the long term and make that company a better firm for the, for, with the investment? Um, on the corporate side, you see here it's um, from Greece, from a major investment from a company called Costco. And there was a lot of social, a lot of social distress of essentially the local workers that were fired because they were getting paid too high wages, they weren't working enough hours. And this was a very controversial deal, despite from an economic perspective, it was actually quite successful. Um, but there are also, despite these, these risks and the negative side of Chinese investment in, in, in Europe, there are also several benefits. There are things like job growth, and with, the, with these investments come jobs, and also you get to keep jobs for companies that would otherwise fail. You'll see improved infrastructure, so there have been several bridge, trains, rail um, investments that have been done. Um, obviously, in some of the emerging markets, these have been quite controversial. But uh, again, because they have to play by the rules, by because of more strict regulations here in the UK, it can be quite different. Um, given the tough times that many industrial firms have faced here in the US, they're helping to revive certain industries and companies. Um, and obviously, tax revenues that come from these companies investing here. Um, and also new market access. So there's areas such as, right now China's the world's largest automobile market. Also the world's largest, one of the world's largest mine consuming markets. So Chinese companies are purchasing auto suppliers, are purchasing automotive firms in the US and Europe. They're even going to Paris and France and purchasing vineyards. So there's certain areas, and you'll see this with companies, there's one company in particular called Fosun, the Chinese Fuxin. And this company is placing lots of investments based on the strategy that there's areas of demand in China that they can get, they can get these capabilities by making investments overseas in international markets. Um, the last is a bit, uh, I'd say, a bit aspirational at this stage. 
It's this whole idea of corporate philanthropy. And you see this with Western companies, and you're not seeing too much of it right now with Chinese companies, which is as these companies are making money and they're profitable in the international markets, they're giving back to the communities, responsing, they're investing responsibly in, in those local communities, both at home, but also more and more overseas. Um, so two cases, case studies to share with you about the beneficial side of Chinese investment in Europe. So on the benefit side, this is a company called Walter Cobert from a very small town in Germany. It's an industrial firm. And they were invested in by a, a company from China with a, a very creative name called Beijing Number One. <laughs> And the state-owned company they invested in Waldrick, they were actually a, a partner and a customer of Waldrick for many years prior to the acquisition. So they learned the ins and outs of their business. Waldrick went through some very tough economic times. They were sold to a private equity firm that went bad, and they needed somebody to come in and turn around the business. So Beijing number one went in, and they did exactly that. Um, they invested 40 million euros um, within the first five years of the business's operations. Um, it continues to thrive today, and it also opened up new markets for the firm in China as well. We see a similar, we saw a similar example in, in Wei Chai Power uh, with a company in, in France. Uh, Wei Chai is interesting because their core business is bulldozers, but they made some fairly interesting investments overseas. Um, they've invested in 2009 in this um, maritime motors firm from France. They also purchased Ferretti in 2012 as a yacht maker. And then just recently, they purchased Kion from uh, Germany, um, which is more in terms of forklift. So a very diverse set of companies, but they're doing everything in terms of you know, automotive and industrials. So with, the, with their 2.9 million euro investment into this French company, they were actually able to turn around the firm in a similar fashion. And the reason why we're looking at examples from 2009 and 2005 is because this is just getting started. It's hard to be able to see what happens when you see a Lenovo acquisition just earlier this year, or when you see Sammy investing in Putzmeister last year. These investments take a long time to see what those ramifications are, and what the consequences are, or what the positive benefits will be. Um, so I, I assume we're going to see many more case studies like this in the years to come. But for now, we kind of need to work with what we've been able to see unfold over recent years. Um, so I just want to end by showing kind of where we are today. I think as a whole, we are very early in this entire phenomenon. Uh, Chinese companies are going global for many of the reasons that we just talked about. And some of them don't even realize that they have that need yet. And so all, we, all I can say is that this trend has a lot of room to grow. And we're going to see more and more Chinese companies purchasing Western firms, investing internationally, and gradually getting the experience they need in mastering those five relationships that I shared with you. It's going to take time. It's probably going to take a new generation of more globally-minded leaders to take seat in these firms, especially in state-owned enterprises that certainly won't kind of open their minds at this stage in the game. Um, so that's really what I have today, and I'd like to open it up for Q&A and address any questions that you have. Right. So thank you very much for a very important So the floor is now open for questions and comments. So who would like to start? OK. Uh, can you just ask you from your perspective what Western countries should be, um, should be considering when these companies come to Western? Like I'm from Latin America, and there's the China Construction Bank, and it was really interesting 
That's exactly right. I think you make a, a good point, which is the fact that these Chinese companies are used to doing business within their own environment in a certain way. And what does that mean when they go internationally? So to give you an example, when I was working with state-owned companies in China, I worked with one of China's largest chemical companies called ChemChina. It's a large chemical conglomerate. And what they did was, just from a, a business management perspective, um, their CEO was so interested in, in noodles. Like He grew up in one of China's famous fast food noodle restaurants. Or, or it, was, it was renowned for his fast food restaurants. So when he created this large, successful chemical company, he went ahead and actually created a subdivision of it that was, became one of China's largest noodle restaurants just because he wanted to. So that type of thing wouldn't really happen, or it can't happen as these companies want to go into Latin America, Europe, US, and Europe. I think where you see things change to address your specific question is where there are more stricter regulations, where you see a lot more screening of these investments, you're going to have a lot more Chinese companies will be, I'd say, engaging the same way any other company would from other markets. The challenges is when you go, when you see Chinese investment in more developing markets, where the governments are, are more lenient on standards, when they're letting them bring in full labor forces from China. Those are where you'll see a lot of things change and see them kind of change the rules of the game. But if you look at a lot of these more advanced economies, they really just have to play by the rules. And a company, especially in the state-owned banking sector, they're probably going to be there more so servicing Chinese firms that are operating overseas versus servicing domestic clients. Um, do you think that uh, companies in China feel pressured to go uh, like go global just because uh, they sort of fear the uh, <coughs> large credit bubble in China and they want some more market diversification in different areas? Um, I think it depends. I think if you look at real estate in particular, it's, uh, that can really trickle down to the individual level. A lot of high net worth individuals right now, they're looking for ways to get their money out by placing very large investments in real estate overseas. Well, there, there's lots of examples here in London. There's lots of examples in the U.S. And a lot of times this is to get investor visas to be able to immigrate them and their families. Um, from the corporate perspective, I, I don't think that's really going to be one of the major drivers. I mean, it could be because a lot of these larger conglomerates tend to have real estate divisions associated with them. Um, but more and more of the reasons, let's say, are, are because of the business side of the motivations that I shared. It just makes more business sense for why these companies want to go overseas. Um, the cost of labor has increased substantially, especially for manufacturing firms. Um, taxes are higher, energy prices are higher. So the environment is just much different than it was when a lot of these firms first started a number of years ago. You touch upon corporate philanthropy in your presentation. I was wondering if you could elaborate more on how Chinese companies are um, working on corporate social responsibility, if you can give us any examples, and how do you see this being a very important part in how it goes global? Yeah, so I think it's an important part, I think, with many of this is whether or not the Chinese firms want to take the advice that they should be doing this. Um, I think you see that across the board, whether it's public relations, consulting, accounting, Chinese companies aren't really tending to work with outside providers for these services to help them understand that. 
um, it's important for them to invest in, in corporate social responsibility just because they're being met with negative views from a lot of these nations. I mean, there are certain nations here in, in Europe that are more open to it because they are, there are significant economic benefits. Let's say in the United States, they're a lot more skeptical of Chinese investments. So that's why Chinese companies investing in these markets need to make sure that they're kind of demonstrating that they're long-term responsible stakeholders and in investing in these markets, but you're not going to see that for years to come. It doesn't happen right when they place the investment. It happens by having a long-term track record of being a responsible investor. Um, so I don't see a ton of examples. I see a lot of some one-off examples, like the one I just shared with you. I've seen stories of higher donating air conditions to, com to communities that have power outages and stuff, but I don't really see a lot of examples of substantial corporate social responsibility from Chinese companies. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, looking back at the network of um, government agencies that Chinese company has to go through in order to place investments abroad, um, do you see any danger of uh, it being just another means of uh, Chinese government and then by extension the Communist Party is basically just spreading and trying to spread its influence? Or do you, basically, so do you see the danger of um, yet another back channel of uh, Chinese influence abroad? I mean, I think as more and more Chinese companies go global, whether they're state-owned or private, they're inevitably going to have a substantial amount of influence abroad. And you see that now, especially if you look at some of the emerging markets. You can see it in some of the developed markets. I think as these companies do go global, though, some of it will be, be dependent on the government push if they're a state-owned company. I mean, that they're certainly going to be treated a lot differently. Um, but at the same time, as they go through those processes, the government actually is, is promoting them um, through loosening certain regulations. So the NDRC just kind of loosened its regulations to make sure that if a Chinese private company wants to invest below a certain amount, they don't need to go through as many hoops as they would otherwise. So they're making the, the environment more hospitable. But I, I still think the Chinese companies themselves, especially if you look outside of SOEs, are going overseas primarily to get the capabilities to compete effectively in international markets and then be able to compete more effectively back home. And there's no kind of hidden agenda. Um, but inevitably, with more and more Chinese companies operating abroad, there, there will be that channel that, that is this prompt being tapped into by the government. All right. OK. Good. Um, I wonder okay. in how far you see um, the fact that Chinese companies go to the West and obviously are exposed to different practices in terms of labor rights or community and so on. Um, how, how much does that influence the way they do business back home, if yeah. at all? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting point. I think that's one of the schools of thought is that as more and more Chinese companies invest overseas and they get experience operating by more stringent regulations, they see the benefits. Will they then create that same level of stability and regula regulations back home in China? Um, I don't know if we've seen a lot, just because the, the time that, that it's taken for Chinese companies to go global has still been relatively short. Chinese business did not exist until the reform and opening in 1978, and Chinese companies really didn't even start going global it, it, beyond especially some of these emerging markets until maybe the last five, five to ten years at most. So we just haven't seen enough time pass in order to be able to answer that question, but it's a very valuable idea and something that a lot of people are hoping will happen. Right. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I'll come to you. I'll be interested to go back to the relationship with companies and their own government. And how much do you think the fact that a company has some political connections 
actually influences their ability to be successful in the long term when they grow up. So given the fact that like a third of the businessmen are also CCP members, and that there is a lot of red capitalists rising up since the reforms. Wondering if you think that a firm that has a background, like the CEO having like connection, might actually make them more able or more successful in that because of this I mean, personally, I think that a lot of this con the connection to a lot of these wealthy individuals who are CEOs that have CCP membership, I, I think a lot of it gets overblown because I think especially from the private sector, so somebody like oh, Wang Jianlian from Dali M1 on AMC and Sunseeker, for him that's a credentializer. It's not really like he is an avid communist. It's the fact that he wants to be able to say that he is not only one of the wealthiest people in all of China and the world, but also he is a, an avid proponent of supporting kind of the development of China. And that's kind of one of the ways they're looking at it. I think as you see kind of the political crackdown in China, there's more and more you know, corruption crackdowns. And that's not only going to affect the Chinese companies back at home, it's going to impact them going global. Um, you will see examples of Chinese companies that may otherwise have failed, at least in the past. But because they got government support, they've been able to survive and then also get the financing they need to go internationally. But over the long term, I don't really see this being as much of an issue because at least under the current administration, I don't see as many holes for that to happen. OK, go ahead. <coughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, what's the share um, currently in Europe or um, US of state-led uh, Chinese investment? Because as far as I remember, the Rodian Group had a report in 2012 was about 75% uh, and most of them not in green fields on M&A. Um, do you, do you know, like, recent statistics, which, basically, what, uh, which, uh, which way are we going? More to state-led investments or more private? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the statistics around this, I mean, I think it's very hard to calculate. And I think one of the challenges we've seen from the West is how can you trust the data of what you're getting on the ground in China? And I think if you look at the other side, because of the different investment vehicles that Chinese, invest and Chinese companies have as they're going through third-party countries as they make their international investments, it can be very difficult to quantify. And so I think you have companies like Rhodium, you have the Heritage Foundation's tractor in DC. All of them are giving you directional evidence, but they, they far from capture the reality of the situation, which is why in my book, I tend to focus much more on the executives themselves and their business decision makings of why they're, why they're actually going overseas and the challenges they face. I think if you look at directionally, I'd say we're moving more towards the private sector. I think these private companies are, are facing a much more difficult business environment in China, and because of the reasons that I mentioned earlier, that's why they're going overseas. They need to be able to compete more effectively at home, and they need to diversify their businesses into international markets. Um, so I think that's kind of where I'm seeing things trend, but in terms of actual data points, I think nobody really knows. All right, go ahead. Yeah, you just said uh, it's not the right time for Ali to go U.S. and uh, Europe. And uh, what kind of preparation do you think they would take, and how long it will take? It's a good question. I think uh, some investors would really like to know that. <laughs> I, I think Alibaba is in a unique position because I, I do feel that it's capable of going global. And I think that's that can be true for a lot of Chinese internet companies, a lot of technology, biotechnology companies. Because they tend to be run by founders who are younger, they have more international exposure. A lot of their business models, like for example Alibaba, a lot of their business models have been adapted from the West and then and then changed and tailored more to suit the Chinese market. Um, so I do feel that Alibaba could be successful overseas, and it just depends on what path it takes. The reason why I say it's not the right time is I think the market potential back home is still too great. Okay. 
and while they can experiment all they want to entering Europe, entering the US, they would be much better off doubling down on China and just gradually expanding their presence when the time's right. But I think expanding right now just because there's so much hype around this IPO, I don't think it's the right decision for them to make. Okay, go ahead. Um, when you talk about a hands-off approach, um, when, when, company, when PR companies and branding companies and consultancy companies are the ones who take this responsibility of integrating these companies, what's the main difficulties that they face? Um, so I, I think, again, a lot of this goes down to experience. A lot of Chinese companies are not used to working with these third parties when doing business. Um, back home, they rely heavily on smaller government agencies, and they understand how to navigate that environment back home, whether it be in their home province or other provinces. The challenge is, is that when they go into international markets, they can't get the advice they're looking for about where they should invest, what city should they invest in, what project they should invest in, and then how to actually successful go, successfully go from step A to step Z. Um, the challenges they face is that they don't really see the value in paying for an intangible service. I think a lot of the forward-looking companies, they do see value in paying for you know, things like accounting, things like M&A advisory, but things that are like public uh, relations, marketing, advertising, these are viewed kind of as very soft third-party services, and they don't really view them to be essential in, in executing on it. So when they do hire a firm in the advisory space, they tend to have very unrealistic expectations. They tend to want more for significantly less money, and they're very difficult from the Western perspective to work with them. Um, so to give you an example from my book, I, I had interviewed several people who had, were leading up kind of the global China practice for PR firms, for management consulting firms. And they all opened these uh, in, the, in probably the last two years, and they were all very excited about being able to guide hordes and hordes of Chinese executives that want to enter international markets. Um, but none of them were really seeing the business. Um, in best case, I saw a company that worked with maybe a Huawei or a Lenovo for one account. Um, they were charging less than they typically do for their American or European clients, and they were getting very strict demands from their clients about what their expectations were for execution. Um, so I think the time will come. I think as more and more of these companies do go overseas, they'll see the value and they'll pay, pay accordingly. Um, but right now, advisors in the professional services space that work with Chinese firms are having a pretty hard time. <coughs> All right, okay, go ahead. Mm, I mean, what sectors uh, do you see, like, uh, do you see, like, Chinese companies are more interested in, like, uh, in, like, in what sectors do you see, like, um, more and more, like, m and take place, like, in Europe, and especially in UK, like, uh, what sectors are they more interested in? Um, I, I think it's hard to say. I think any industry right now, just given the diversity of Chinese companies, there's just as much diversity in the acquisitions that they want to make and where they want to invest in. Um, one trend I have seen, which I mentioned during the talk, is a company, Fosun. Um, they've, they've adopted a strategy that I've seen a few Chinese companies use where they target a few trends that they see being extremely large in China, so things like e-commerce, things like luxury, things like auto. Um, because it's just so clearly going to be a growing market at home, they're going out and purchasing firms that have the technology or have international brands that can either help them compete more effectively or, or increase their brand positioning to be able to charge a higher price. Um, so I wouldn't say there's one specific industry or one, one specific set of industries, but there are common themes that you do see in some of the investments that are being made. Right, okay. Right, uh, two questions. First, could you tell us how many Chinese companies are actually making money overseas? You haven't actually told us so far. The second question, um, we know after 2008, uh, China had a, 
had a problem of shrinking demand, right? So the, the domestic demand uh, is not big enough to support a open and you know exporting economy. Do you think going west shows the fundamental flaw of the economy rather than a strength of the economy? I think whether this is a weakness of the economy or the strength of the economy. I, I think it's a it's a very good question. I think as you look at Chinese companies going abroad, I think because well, there's obviously the going out policy. I think what I talked about is that that's not the primary reason why a lot of these companies are going global, and a lot of them are being done primarily through the interests of the founders of these firms and, and their intentions to be as global as an Apple or a Coca-Cola. And so in that regard, I don't think it reflects on the strength of the economy. I think it reflects more on the strength of a, certain, a small number of companies that are placing international investments. Um, in, in regards to the profitability, I, I really don't know. It's, if I were to guess, I would say a lot of them are, are unprofitable. And I think you see that with the lack of profitability in many of the state sector, which has led a lot of these investments. And I'm sure that's going to extend to their investments in international markets. Um, but I, again, I think the area to watch is the private companies because they can't afford to go overseas and place these big investments and hope to get saved back home, at least when they're at a certain size. Um, so, yeah, I just think you, you, you will see more and more of kind of Chinese companies operating at international standards, but for now, I'd say most are probably not profitable. Okay, go ahead. I've got a couple of questions again. Um, first one, quoting from the presentation about Chinese organizations paying a 33% premium when they are aiming at some target in the United States. Uh, are there any specific reasons why they are succumbing to ending up spending 33% upwards? Yeah, that's on, on one side. On the second side, um, going back to the, the story that actually took birth from LSE in 2010 on the economic center of gravity moving eastwards as opposed to west, westwards, and large amount of consumers being, being driven from the eastern part of the world. Um, is China missing a big ball game that's getting activated on the eastern side of the world? Uh, mostly to do with the emerging markets to India and Latin America and Brazil. Okay, so I think to your first question, I think the question is rel the answer is relatively simple around why are they paying more. I think it's because that's just the price that they need to pay by the, invest the investment bankers because there is so much more deal risk associated with them. Most of these Chinese companies do not have experience making these international investments, so there's a higher rate of, rate of failure that's expected. And then there's also a much more complex regulatory environment, so it's going to probably make it a lot harder to get approvals in the, in the time frame necessary. Um, whether or not they're looking to go overseas at the expense of a big opportunity back in Asia, I think you're, you're spot on. And I don't think they're really missing out. I think the amount of investment in the West is still relatively small. And I think you see a lot of this investment going into Southeast Asian markets and other markets in Asia and other emerging markets. Um, also, a, a strategy that a lot of Chinese companies take that don't have a lot of experience overseas is they start in Southeast Asia, they start in other emerging markets that are more adaptable and more similar to the Chinese context because they're used to doing business um, in, in certain ways. And then they then take that international experience to then go into more advanced economies like the US and in Europe. So I don't see it's, it's a decision of whether they focus on Asia or whether they go west. I just think it's probably more of a combination of both. Yeah, let me ask a question. Um, is, is there no such thing as a unique Taiwan Western company? Uh, 
My Western company, actually, differ. Many of them are very open, um, open-minded. Some of them are closed, and they have very different structures. So there is no reason to think that there is a single type of Chinese company. I mean, Chinese companies actually differ. So how much, uh, you know, and they are going to become even more different as the time goes by because their learning experiences are, are, are different. So how much, uh, how, mu- uh, how much variation there is in the behavior of the Chinese company? Um, I think you're exactly right. There's a lot of people try to put Chinese companies all in one bucket the same way they try to put all American or European companies in, in one bucket. Um, I think there's too much of a diversity, diversity both in terms of um, ownership structure, in terms of just how they're set up between whether they're state-owned, whether they're private, whether they're, uh, in my book I talk a bit about more of a hybrid ownership structure. So companies that seem private on the surface, but in reality do have quite a bit of government influence in terms of their success. Um, over time, as these companies get larger and larger, and you see this already with some private firms, the relationship with the government and the relationship with other stakeholders becomes a little less clear and it becomes a lot more complicated. So I, I do see that as more and more Chinese companies do go global, they do get larger and they do start operating in diversity of countries, the ownership structure, um, how they're even setting up their organizational structure will vary. Uh, another example back at Lenovo is just how their org is structured. Um, they don't have a headquarters that's in a single location. Um, and I've never seen a Western company do this, but they have about three different headquarters spread, one in the United States, one in Europe, and one in Asia. And I was speaking with their chief marketing officer, and we were saying that they actually, all the managers travel around and they work in each one of those throughout the year. Um, and, and I've never seen an American company or even a European company do this, and I think it's actually a very innovative approach when it comes to managing a global organization, because time differences, cultural differences, can be exacerbated when the only communications you have are via conference calls and emails. And I think the more that we can see models like this develop, they're not only things that other Chinese companies should study, but also things that American and European companies should study as well. Right. Okay, go ahead. Do you think Chinese globalization also like neighboring countries become a global impact as well? Sorry, can you repeat that a little bit? Do you think Chinese globalization I, I do think it's inevitable as Chinese companies are operating in other markets in Asia, other markets in Africa, Latin America, you will see more and more linkages between them. I, I don't necessarily know if that means all of a sudden you'll see a, a rise of companies from Southeast Asia or other markets, but I do know that China is not the only company that's create, uh, not the only country, excuse me, that's creating um, that's creating kind of multinational corporations. You see, with my firm, Frontier Strategy Group, we work with a lot of companies that are dealing with multi-Latinas, and these Latin American companies are looking to go global. Um, in Asia, there's a number of companies in, in Singapore, not to mention that the economies in, in South Korea or in Japan. Um, so this is a trend that we're seeing across the board, that the only players internationally are not just advanced economies. There's more and more emerging market competitors and, and companies that are operating around the world. So. All right. Um, you just mentioned that you've seen some innovative practices in um, the way that Chinese companies are structured. Have you observed any other innovative approaches that Western companies could work from learn from? Um, I, I think in general it tends to work in the opposite direction. I, I do feel that a lot of a lot of Chinese companies need to study kind of what's been proven in the last 20, 30 years of corporate globalization. 
Um, I mean, there's plenty of kind of, I'd say, one-off examples that you could point out. So, for example, a company like Hire, um, they have a very strong localization strategy. So if they're <coughs> regarding what market they're operating in, they tend to sell very different products. So internationally, in a market like Japan, they might focus more on smaller washing machines. In the United States, they'll focus on mini fridges. Even in rural China, compared to more developed cities, they sell different products. So in uh, rural China, they sell washing machines that not only will wash clothes, but will also wash potatoes. Uh, so if you're a rural farmer, that can be a very useful way to get your first washing machine, because it serves multi-purposes. Um, I, I have not seen, I think you can probably see examples from a company like General Electric or something that's done fairly similar things, but the vast majority of European and American companies they tend to do one thing well, and they try to slightly localize that in different versions in the different markets, but I've yet to see a company that goes to that far of an extreme from the West. How do Chinese companies compare with Korean and Japanese companies? It's a very good question, and one that I, I hear quite often. Um, I think Japanese and Korean companies, they certainly have a lot more experience. They've certainly made that scale from when Korean and Japanese firms first entered the West. They were viewed with skepticism about product quality, about the business practices that their firms were going to take. Um, but I do see that Chinese companies, well, they will face a similar, similar challenges at the same time. I, I think it's going to take a little bit longer for their products and their, their management style to kind of get more and more global. Um, I think we've seen a lot of companies, like whether that be Samsung, that made that transition in a relatively short period of time, or a lot of the Japanese automotive companies that have kind of risen from being at the low end of the value spectrum to the high end of the spectrum. Uh, I don't know if we're going to be seeing people create to purchase Chinese firms from BYD or GE anytime soon, but you might see a situation where through these international acquisitions, they're able to use these overseas brands and apply them to their home market and other international markets and kind of achieve that global brand recognition through indirect means. Okay, last question. Joe, I got a question, but just in terms of yourself. Like you, you said, you mentioned you used to work in a Chinese company, and then it's more like centralized decision-making process rather than decentralized decision-making. I mean, looking looking back these days, like when you were in China, and what influenced you most, or what changes brought you when you were in that situation? Um, so when I was in China, I was working with state-owned companies who were looking to list overseas or, or expand overseas. Um, it was a very different environment. All the decisions were made kind of by the, in Chinese, the Dalai the big boss. Um, and nobody really was ready to make the big, important decisions. It was kind of meeting after meeting of really not accomplishing much. So I, I saw a lot of the centralization firsthand in the companies that I worked with. Um, but that said, even when I started working for American companies, so my, one of my first jobs was actually with my current employer. I've been with them for a number of years now. But it was when I opened their Asia Pacific office with a small group of Americans. So we were four Americans on the ground in Singapore, meant for working in the Asia-Pacific region. And then we had a headquarters in the US that was fully staffed and was actually at quite a large scale. And so a lot of the decisions that we wanted to make on the ground that we thought were right for the Asian market were, were essentially being challenged by a corporate center that was viewing things from an American lens. Um, over time, that became, the company became more global five, six years later. It's, it's, they've really been able to strike that right balance of being both both maximizing the scale of a large organization while having kind of on-the-ground insight from the teams. And I think 
my company is not unique. It's also an area that we work with a lot of clients that are a lot larger than ours, like even very large Fortune 500 companies. They're, they're always trying to find ways of how do they real, realize the fact that they are a very large multi-billion dollar company, but they do have regional offices on the ground and they need to find ways to incorporate the insights and the talent into the global organization. And I think regardless of whatever size you are, it's a very challenging problem to resolve. Okay, thank you very much for a very informative.